के लिए रसायन विज्ञान द्वारा लाया गया Hello everyone and welcome to Brought to You by Chemistry. What's brought to you by chemistry, I hear you ask? Complicated reactions, complicated exams, even more complicated romances? Yes. But in this case, it's also a new podcast series from the Royal Society of Chemistry. So you see the branding there. My name is Dr. Alex Lathbridge, and in this series we're taking a look at plastics, bringing together experts from inside and outside the chemistry world to help us understand the ins and outs of all things plastic. Now, plastics are of course a valuable resource, no doubt about that. But plastics aren't necessarily fantastic when you think about how we've used them, especially when it comes to the environment. As consumers, we only see a small fraction of the life cycle of a product, and we're often very concerned about where it goes after we've used it. But what happens before that? What happens before we even get it? How's the product made? How's it transported? And what impact does all of that have on the environment? So today we're looking at something called life cycle analysis. So this is the idea that the environmental impact of a product starts right from when that product is produced and lasts all the way until it's reached the end of its life and has been disposed of. Now this is a very 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 complicated thing. So today with us I have two wonderful experts, one from inside the chemistry world and one from outside the chemistry world, both fantastic. From inside our chemistry world, we have Sharnet Chow and our non-chemistry expert is Ruth Strange. Now, I'm going to start with Charnette. Hi, um I'm Charnette Chow. I work at UCL, I'm a research fellow at the UCL Plastic Waste Innovation Hub. So, um as part of my job is to look at the environmental impact of plastic systems and how um in, what are the environmental impacts of future um intervention that we want to put in place in our society. and our non chemistry expert our real world expert can i get you to introduce yourself say a couple of things about yourself yeah so i'm ruth and i work at ethical consumer magazine been there for about 5 or 6 years and we do um product guides to all the well a lot of the things that people buy that we've got over 100 different guides and we look at a whole range of issues for the companies that make those products and plastic and plastic packaging is one of the many things we look at wonderful now ruth you're going to hear a lot of talk about things called life cycle analysis and you're going to think about the ethics and all of that but first i'm going to start with charnet and so I've got some very interesting questions about a very interesting subject that until maybe 6 minutes ago I had no idea existed. So please could you use your chemistry knowledge and explain what is life cycle analysis? Life cycle assessment is a methodology used to evaluate environmental impacts of a product or process or a system over its life cycle and um you put it quite nicely in terms of what happens at um when we um extract the materials from the ground or when we manufacture or like manipulate these materials into products how we use it and what happens to it at end of life so this life cycle assessment we look at the input and outputs or like elementary flows of um each life cycle stage we 
then look at what does that mean to the environment? So um, converting these inputs and outputs to environmental impacts. Um, we look at a range of different types of environmental impact, not just climate change, not just um, global warming potential, but other impacts such as acidification, eutrophication, ecotoxicity, etc. So then we can fit properly um, compare different systems and having a look at um, what are the trade-off in terms of well current system or when we look at um, a new implementation or new scenario of um, in the future as well okay okay and so like from how you explained it it's super diverse like you consider so many different factors and you know you, you talked about all these different areas that, you know, it can affect, especially, you know, the big one around climate change. You know, that's, that's the thing I think about when I'm trying to think about what plastics I use or whether I should stop using plastics. And, you know, in the last year, one of the big things that I've been thinking about, one of the big things that everyone's been thinking about in terms of like waste has been, um, you know, our masks for COVID-19. We've all been wearing masks. Now, some people um, like me, have these very snazzy reusable ones you you can just about see it because i mean look, the color is amazing but i only started get i only really started doing that recently um until I mean, before then i was just using you know these reusable ones now with masks is that's something you've looked at right yes so um as a hub um back in um Back last year, before um, lockdown, the first lockdown of ending, um, the government was um, advising everyone to wear face masks. So um, what we know back then was there's not really um, marketable um, reusable face masks, but most people would use single-use face masks. And at that point, we knew that single-use face masks are typically made of um, plastic fabric or fabric material, so poly, poly, polypropylene um, non-woven fabrics are typically what is made of the surgical mask or even the more um, higher rated um, FFP masks, like FFP2, FFP3 masks that are used in medical or in healthcare. We did a study looking at what if everyone in the UK were to use a single use face mask every day versus what if everyone uses reusable face mask? And we did a life cycle assessment on that and um, as well as cost analysis and behavior analysis on, um, on both of these um, scenarios. And it does came out that in terms of wastage, reusing um, face masks compared to single use, um, we have a lot less waste um, generated as well as less like as a whole in terms of climate change or and all the other environmental impact, it is a lot lower. Having said that, there are um, trade-offs in the sense where using single-use face masks, people don't need to um, wash it. So then um, there's a higher, um, as compared to um, usable face masks, there's a lot less um, impact associated with washing. So like less soap is used, less water is used from, um, from that sense, but as a whole, if you look at all the different types of environmental impact, it is less environmentally harmful to use um, reusable masks. Ruth, all these questions coming to you from here in South London to all the way to you in West Germany. Um, it feels like we're in the 90s now. Um, um, okay, you know, even though I asked, like, can you explain a little bit about Ethical Consumer Magazine? Yeah, so... 
we look at the companies behind the brands. So we're looking at the, the company behavior across a company group, like what, what other companies might be part of the same family, as well as looking at the product itself and the materials. Um, we have a rating system that's all explained on our website. So we look at a whole, we look for indicators on a range of issues under different main headings, environment, people, animals, and politics. So under environment, we look for, for example, whether a company has targets to reduce its impact. Um, also under there's climate change. So we look at whether they are reporting on their emissions and we assess them on their approach to pollutions and toxics. And if they use ingredients like palm oil or cotton, we look at that as well, depending on what sector they're in. Increasingly, we are looking at packaging as well or how to avoid it, but actually it's often the ingredients inside products and materials that have a much bigger impact than the actual packaging. I have not bought Ethical Consumer, but, you know, I've been on your website and I've seen, you know, it's not just the materials going in, uh, you know, it's their, their companies, like their rights to give workers to, uh, to allow workers to unionize, you know, it's, it's really looking at the ethics of, of everything you know, because the world is very complicated. So, I mean, generally, when you're advising your readers on the most ethical or sustainable products, what are the main aspects that you you take into account? I mean, how do you decide exactly you know, mm. which products to recommend? And, you know, do you find yourself recommending plastic products over something else? Okay, so, yeah, so we have this rating system under these four main headings. So after we've um, rated each company on whichever of those are relevant to them. So would in, including supply chain management, um, whether they're members of lobby groups or using likely tax avoidance um, strategies, whether they're paying their directors excessively. Oh, all wow. Of, yeah, you all really, sorts of you things. You really go in. <laughs> yeah. Wow, this is investigative journalism. What? <laughs> so... Um, we can't always find the information, but we, you know, we go on what's publicly available through internet research or campaign group reports and news reports and things like that. Um, yeah, so it's not just the direct environmental impact, but if they are members of lobby groups or they're um, using tax avoidance strategies or they're paying their uh, directors excessively or just shareholders above other concerns, then they're they are holding society back from acting on concerns such as plastic pollution and they're holding individuals back by increasing inequality in society so that not everyone has the same choices about what they're going to buy because they can't necessarily afford the best options. So companies can impact all these issues in so many different ways. So we try to, once we've done all those ratings, our database throws out a score, calculates the score and all the companies on our score table we end up with a score table either in the magazine or on the website some companies will rise to the top and some will fall to the bottom with whatever the scores they've got and based on that mainly based on the score we can pick out the best buys and just under them the recommendations but there might be things that aren't really captured by the scores like we don't have a rating for to cover everything so there might be other things that come into that decision as well so you won't always have the best companies some of the companies we recommend might not be right at the top of the table but we're also sometimes just re recommending buying less oh, you know really? <laughs> no, but why, why do you recommend buying less so you might have heard the phrase like the best mobile phone you have, but if you're trying to choose an ethical phone or something, 
the most ethical one is the one you already own. Like, why do you need to, do you need to upgrade? Do you need the, you know, the newest thing? Or maybe there's a, a library of things in your area where you can share products. Maybe you don't need to buy a, whatever it is, head trimmers or something. If it's something you only use occasionally, you can be sharing that with other people. And yeah, we don't necessarily need to buy so many packaged products. Like, for example, do you need hair conditioner if you can just use a drop of cider vinegar in some water? There's always other options. And a lot oh. of our readers will send us lots of ideas as well. Um, as a black man, I can tell you, I do need conditioner. I need <laughs> the many leave-ins I have. Okay. <laughs> so maybe that's not for me. But, you know, with that in mind, but who buys Ethical Consumer Magazine? And why do you think they do? Like, why do they care so much? Because obviously, you are super passionate about this. I think, uh, so we do a report, a markets report annually, uh, called the Ethical Consumer Markets Report. And that um analyzes how much are people spending on these kind of things like are they choosing organic over non-organic or fair trade or are they trying to reduce plastic and the the spend in these kind of alternative ethical choices is going up year by year generally um so i think just more and more people care about or are aware of all these different issues and it can come from something really well known like uh you know the advert that was on the Greenpeace Iceland advert about palm oil or the David Attenborough series. When something big like that happens, lots more people get interested in particular issues. I, I just think if if you're not distracted, you will care. So with that, what can what can big companies do to avoid you know earning the ire of um, Ethical Consumer Magazine? Uh, like, do do you think these manufacturers, do they need to be more transparent about the impacts of, of their products? I mean, what do you think they can do to help consumers, you know, consumers who really care about this stuff, but don't have all the information? How can they help them um, make better decisions or be more informed? Mm. Um, so, yeah, they can definitely be more transparent in their information about their products and also in how they talk about their ethics as in so an example is a lot of companies we've looked at around their palm oil use they will say we don't use palm oil and that may be true but palm oil can also be used to make lots of derivative ingredients and they in household or cosmetic products they might be used far more than actual palm oil itself and a company can hide that by saying we don't use palm oil and not mentioning the derivatives I wish companies were more transparent and more honest, but unfortunately for profit-driven companies, that's not always their priority. So we often rely on campaign groups to uncover these things. Um, There are other models, though, of businesses that are more likely to address address these kind of things, like benefit corporations, B Corps, people might have heard of. What are B Corps? It stands for benefit corporation so i think it started in america but it's it is there are companies in the uk using this as well and it just means that um environmental and community and employer considerations have to be taken into account alongside shareholder you know profits for shareholders so they have to legally they've chosen a form a business model that means they have to consider those other things as well and so i mean your consumers, I mean, your, your readers are probably pretty savvy about this sort of stuff. But, you know, what advice do you have for the rest of us, I guess? How can we make more ethical decisions around plastics? I and mean, what would help us? 
Mm. So, I mean, our, like, we do have a subscription to the magazine and that costs something, but the website, you can look at that for free. There's loads of stuff on there. You can search for company names or different issues like microplastics or whatever it is that you want to find out about on our website. You'll find stuff. Um, then, so in terms of plastics in particular, we can all try to be more aware of and avoid the more obvious forms of plastic like water bottles. Like you can have a reusable bottle or just reuse one bottle many times. Or, you know, like you could buy a bar of soap instead of liquid soap in a bottle. So you can avoid the obvious plastics. But there's also hidden plastics that are worth knowing about as well. So, for example, in cosmetics, you, you might find in a lot of cosmetics, there are microplastics. And do you want a shocking figure, shocking statistic <laughs> that Look, I had to check because I couldn't believe it? There are there are people in this chat who would most definitely love <laughs> love a shock i would like a shocking statistic Ruth, okay. hit me with a shocking statistic it better be good so the average person each week ingests about five grams of microplastics through water or food or air and that's like the weight of a credit card each of us is ingesting every week so if you imagine a credit card we're eating that every week i just couldn't believe it i mean i feel as though a situation in which you're eating a credit card is <laughs> Like, what will you have to done in your life where you're like, oh, no, the only way I can get out of this is eating my credit card. You know, that, 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 that chip and pin needs to be in my gullet quick. I mean, that's incredible and depressing, like incredibly depressing. I mean, how do we get out of that? Is there anything that we can do right now to, to not eat, you know, five grams of microplastics? So um, not directly like that is in the air it's in the water that's a result of how much plastic has been used in all sorts of industries you know most of our clothes are made of plastic in the form of polyester or acrylic or whatever it's in all the packaging it's you know it's everywhere you can't remove you can't just remove it from the environment but there's loads and loads of things that can be done to start to address that so even like to what bank you use you know like Barclays and HSBC are like fourth and sixth in the world for financing plastic production. So switch your bank, for example, or yeah, buying less, but buying better stuff. Like, for example, we just did a guide on laundry detergent, washing up liquids and dishwasher detergents, three different guides, and uh, discovered that, I mean, I, I suppose if you live in one place, like I was living in Derby for 17 years, just until recently, you only see the shops in your town, but actually there's an explosion of zero waste shops and, uh, you know, plastic free shops all over the country. And so in our, in our latest laundry guide, there's a list of places that have refill stations. There's six companies on there that have lists of refill stations all around the country. You can put your postcode in and find out the alternative shops near you. And all of those shops will be full of inspiring alternatives, not just to refill your those kind of products, but other things as well. Or you might see a poster for an event or a group that you could get involved in. There's loads of stuff going on there that can be done. And yeah, it, it can be overwhelming. This is one of the things that I think about with the work that we do like if you get all this information it can feel like what can I do about that you know it's so big and it's everywhere but it's better to just 
take small steps and see what fits into your life and what's around you and what your friends are interested in. Anything that can keep you going on small steps rather than getting overwhelmed, I think is, is worth doing. I mean, yeah, because I've been writing down while we've been speaking. And so I have to check if my bank is bad. <laughs> I have to check whether or not anything I have that ha- doesn't say palm oil has palm oil derivatives. So I have to go on Wikipedia and look at palm oil derivatives. I have to also check the clothes that I'm wearing. Um, I have to also not buy but buy bars of soap and not shampoo and maybe check if I can refill the shampoo or other things I use. This is a lot. This is painfully a lot. Like, you know. This is, that's the thing. Don't think about it all at once. Yeah, you've got all that written down now, but obviously you're not going to deal with it all at once. Like, just think about maybe the one thing you'd like to look at first or something. You're making me want to be more ethical so like i feel like i can make a change but i've been terrible um what do you do ruth let's turn it back to you ruth what are you doing in your day-to-day to to reduce your plastic consumption ruth okay so i'm definitely not here to like guilt trip you i'm just because you're like ruth what are you doing um so i mean i've always kind of not bought a lot i think i just pick that up from my mum who was doing it more for economical reasons but just didn't buy it don't buy a lot like buy a lot of secondhand stuff um use uh whole food shops or those kind of shops that are going to have the alternative brands that are mission driven rather than profit profit driven um and then things just little things like um you know having a refillable bottle having a reusable bag uh, you know, just simple things like that. If you if you're someone who likes to get takeaway coffee, having a reusable cup, yeah. Mainly, it's like not just buying loads of things without thinking about the impact of them. On balance, like, is it a fifty fifty thing? You know, consumers can do so much. Consumers can only do so much. It's down to like manufacturers and also like you know shops. Like, if you're thinking about getting a takeaway coffee and you want to come in with your reusable cup, making sure that you know that like your coffee shop actually allows you to do that or has an incentive for you to do that like there needs to be a balance right totally it's definitely not only the consumer's responsibility and i was reading something this morning let me see if i can remember no but i would recommend that um (laughs) no i was um looking at a report to to prepare for this i i was just looking at a report called bankrolling plastics that that's where i got that figure about Barclays being the fourth in the world. Um, so good that I'm not with Barclays. <laughs> um, and it was talking about how when the plastics industry took off in terms of packaging and things, they kind of deflected attention from their own responsibility by starting litter campaigns. So like Keep America, Keep America Beautiful, I think it was called. And it was like big brands like Coca-Cola and other brands I think started that to kind of say it's the consumer's responsibility to take care of this problem when really it's them making their huge profits and putting these products out there and tempting you with the advertising. It's, it's much more the responsibility of the corporations, but what we can do is support the alternatives and raise awareness and gradually put pressure to change things. It's not our fault, but it's, but we can do something about it. Wonderful. And on that note, Thank you so much, Ruth. Those are all of my questions to you. I went from being, hi, 
to like depress and now i feel like activist i feel like i can do i can make a change how does life cycle assessment how does it translate into like the real world sort of real life how do we see it how do i see it um it's interesting how um people do engage with our research so for instance the mask work we published it and um you do see people engage in terms of having being able to think about their actions or um, considering, okay, the waste they produce and engaging with the fact that, okay, maybe using a reusable mask is more environmentally friendly than using single use. Um, we do we do do um, so like life cycle assessment in terms of translating into real life. It's a tool for, um, I guess, for. The general public or like a society make a choice so put um putting a more evidence-based um finding on the environmental impacts of the two systems and you can choose which one um which action to take um so we got we have other um studies as well including like construction or even using tree shelters for planting trees and we did um, that's a recent study we did and that's recently we published as well and it's to um, to coincide to advise on I guess the um, UK strive to plant two billion trees in like the next like 20 30 years to co- to meet the UK um, net zero target and Um, Planting trees is an important um, activity because it will sequester a load of CO2, but then if we need to use plastic tree shelters to do it, what are the benefits and what are the the cons? Um, It is to do, um, the piece of work is to advise on when best to not use it or when best is to use it because the product itself isn't a isn't unsustainable per se, but um, it's the system we have in it. So if we got a way to dispose of it environmentally, then maybe it is a good product to use. How can research make planting trees bad? (laughs) (laughs) It's meant to be a good thing, but you're telling me there are pros and cons. It is a good thing because, but if you think about the life cycle of planting trees, you have um, typically trees are planted first in tree nurseries. So then there's the electricity, the fertilizers use or water usage in a tree nursery. And then um, we have to transport it to the planting site. So then um, there's emissions associated with with, um, transporting it because we need fuel to take it there. Um, We typically do need packaging on these trees to like t- to transport it safely so then there's waste coming out of these packaging having to like dispose of them so then to um, minimize the need to replant trees we use plastic tree shelters so to help it weathering damage or like animal grazing so that's the benefit of using plastic tree shelters in that sense where it stops it from dying so but then after that, a lot of the time, planting trees wise, um, a lot of these plastic tree shelters are not um, taken away to dispose because they do degrade eventually and that does cause um, microplastics. So, so then our study does look at the environmental impact of not using tree shelters. So without using tree shelters, the tree doesn't survive as much. So the lower trees, um, the less um, less tree survival rate means that you do need to replant trees. So replanting trees mean 
more activities at tree nurseries and more activities into driving these trees to the planting site. So then there are trade-off in terms of what are the correct balance in terms of um, when is best to use um, tree shelters and when is it like okay to not kind of thing. So yeah, it's a tricky question to answer ultimately because it does depend on the tree survival rate or the areas, how much animals is there that will like eat the trees if you don't put a shelter in that kind of thing. So that is a bit of a predicament. Okay. Um, and seeing as she's still here, Ruth, um, you are still here. And so I'm going to ask you sort of like weighing in on this, this feels very much like news night and it's not, um, but like, you know, Charnette does it from the, you know, the research aspect sort of the very top of this and you with um, ethical consumer, you're seeing it from the other side. So uh, as someone who, I guess, someone who advises people on the best way of living a consuming ethically. Um, what do you sort of think about this this entire sort of work, this life cycle system? Um, so I, I'm, there are people in ethical consumer who know more about life cycle assessment than I do. Oh. But um, no, I think it's obviously really important because you don't want there to be hidden costs that you hadn't realized. And you wanna be able to make a sensible decision based on actual information. But I ju I'm just wondering if sometimes uh, there might be a different. So when when you get studies, they're they're done at a particular scale, or maybe they're designed for a particular situation. Like if we're going to be bringing um, fruit from the other side of the world and making juice for people here to drink, then there's there's things you can do to minimise the impacts. But maybe we could rethink the whole model and not be bringing fruit from the other side of the world and not need all that packaging I don't know so I'm just thinking yeah so if that makes sense um, that does make sense that's part of life cycle thinking right so when we do when we carry out life cycle assessment we do set out different scenarios so even for our um, face mask study we um, primarily modeled um, the manufacturer of masks say in China that has a high environmental impact because we're transporting it. So a lot of the impact comes from transporting. So to look at another, another scenario would be manufacturing in say Turkey, where they do have a lot of, they produce a lot of textiles in Turkey or even say manufacturing in the UK. But then when we um, trying to model these, um, taking um, like data from our partners, um, we do realize that, okay, so UK is a high importer of textiles. So there are still going to be some sort of um, import Im impact of materials because we don't, um, UK don't specifically produce a high amounts of textiles, that kind of thing. We do take into that account. Um, so we do put another scenarios where, okay, cool, maybe we can do manufacture other type of mask in, in the UK. So so whenever we do a study, we do try and see what are how how best we can optimize the scenario or like the system that we can do. Um, but also there is restraint in terms of what we could physically model as well because um, we need the the data in terms of or is it feasible because we do need to consider whether um that's cost beneficial whether people would actually do it in terms of behavior as well so um taking into account we 
build scenarios around that yeah can I just say another thing on yeah. That? yeah yeah, <laughs> so, yeah I, 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 I think this is a dilemma that we have as well in that if you're if you want to put out a message that's going to work for the most people that might be different than the message that you would put out if you were talking just in your local area and you had if that makes sense now yes I did know sure. what I was trying to say and yeah I, quite... I know what you mean um a lot of a lot of our work on compostable plastic is that um, when we look at compostable plastic and how um how we dispose compostable plastic is that some local authorities don't take it to um, say IVZs or they don't have an anaerobic digesters in the local authority so then like the compostable um, product will end up in landfill or like incineration regardless so then in terms of on a local authority level how would you advise the public where to dispose of these materials would be different because because then to try and form a uh, um, the most sustainable way of disposing something is also, um, yeah, like you said, it's a very like restricted to locally. So um, they might say, okay, throw it, it's okay to throw it in um, in the food waste system because um, because um, the the IVC or the AD um, in that area have agreed that they can take um, compostable plastic, but then other areas. The um, the waste contractors are, may not be may not have agreed, so then you're you're not supposed to put it in the food waste bin, etc. So it is very hard to streamline the advice that we can give, I suppose. Yeah. And like with that, because you know you're giving this advice and it's going to these manufacturers, you know, or it, I mean, it goes to many different parties in that. Like, do you yourself, um, Shana, ever feel annoyed or feel like your work hasn't been taken into account is that ever the case because you know chatting to Ruth it seems that a lot of companies still do bad things so like from your end do you ever see it like that if that makes sense um I think from our end um we struggle with getting data or um, there might have been some sort of okay let's try and do life cycle assessment on um, a product and see whether it fits into a system but whenever we say okay well you're gonna have to give us data on how the product is made or how um, how this is going to work in terms of how does it then um, then get disposed of there's always some issues with regards to I guess um, IP so in terms of for for instance some a lot of the bioplastic out there are novel materials so then the additive they put in are are not up for are not disclosed, and then it's a bit like, well, if you want us to do a life cycle assessment, then we do need to understand what how this is made, and because it's blocked by IP or anything, it's not we're not able to have a look at it. So, or there's cases where um, they might say it is um, there like when products come come in and say they're totally biodegradable and then you see the the plastic um plastic coating is polypropylene and you know that it's not biodegradable already so it is it feels um i don't know like like normal consumers i feel cheated on in terms of okay the product labeling is not correct and you just want them to be able to um yeah be more transparent in what your product is. Ruth, you work with 
you, know, you work with a lot of data, you know, um, ethical consumer. So, I mean, do you ever run into the same sorts of issues that they're perhaps on certain products, um, there's not enough information on on uh, the products or the companies themselves or the processes they use? Do you ever run into to problems like that, or I is it pretty is it pretty out there? Is it pretty open at your end with the information? Um, no, so before we do a product guide, we always send a questionnaire to the companies so they have the opportunity to give us more information than they might have put out publicly already. But more than more often than not, they don't reply. So we only can go then by what's out there on the internet, either on their own websites or reports or from other sources. So yeah, that's one thing. Um, the way that companies report is so different across the different companies so it's not like you always know where to look to find something it might come under lots of different names you might have to dig around and look for it and I know there's people campaigning to change this across Europe I think they uh, about corporate transparency and how companies should report on their environmental and social impacts so that it's easier for investors to see whether they want to invest in them or not so they're trying to create more standardized methods of reporting so that it's easier to I mean, understand where companies where what they're doing i mean you know if if these companies aren't being transparent you know you you do end up with issues like you know like you you've mentioned like i did not know about these sorts of microplastics stuff well what's the um magazine printed on is it organic paper <laughs> um it is post-consumer recycled paper and with, um, I believe it's vegetable inks. Oh, wow. Okay, 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 okay. It's not, that un- it's not as unusual as it sounds. I was, go- was going to try and catch you out. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I should have known. I was never going to catch you out. So I think I've, coming to the end of this chat, like going forward, what do you think um, people should go away from this this episode, this conversation, knowing about, plastics or society like what should people go if if they've if they've if they've just gone ah i haven't really listened to this they were talking a bit too much about barclay cards and whatnot what would you want them to take away from this ruth i'm going to start with you to allow charnette some time to think about this question there's more to what we buy than meets the eye (laughs) i didn't prepare that um you know, we're led to believe that we, all of the stuff is available on the shelf and we can just have whatever we want. But there's loads of stories, real life impacts behind all of those things that we buy and life cycle assessments and the kind of ratings that ethical consumer does on companies can really help people to understand what's behind those products and then find alternatives because there are alternatives and they're really worth supporting to change how things are done wonderful and Charnette, what about you what would you want people going away from this at the plastic waste innovation hub we do we always say that plastic isn't a, a unsustainable material um, it's the system that is unsustainable so the ultimately plastic isn't an, um, the ultimate enemy um, it's how we use it and how we um, put it back into our system, being able to dispose it co- correctly, um, being or maybe even a cradle-to-cradle cradle approach in terms of being able to use it over and over again is the way forward, is how I feel. 
Ruth, Charlotte, thank you so much for giving us your time. Like, this has been amazing. I've learned so much. Thanks for having us. <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> Join us next week where we'll be joined by marine scientist Winnie Cortine Jones and Professor Paul Anastas, the father of green chemistry, to discuss the tiny objects that have a devastating global impact microplastics. It was produced by Hiran Joshi and Elizabeth Ratcliffe and presented by me, Dr. Alex Lathbridge. As always, if you want to learn a bit more about the RSC and plastics, you can visit rsc.li plastics. Mm -hmm.